Hey there, thanks for tuning in to St. John's Asheville Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope, and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. Our reading tonight comes from Isaiah 53, verse 1 to 6, and it's on page 596 in the Pew Bibles. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity, as one from whom others hide their faces. He was despised and we held him of no account." Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases. Yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the, was the punishment that, was made, that, has, that made us whole. And by his bruises we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of all us all. The second Bible reading tonight comes from Colossians chapter 2, verse 4 to 23, which is on page 957 of the Red Pew Bibles. I am saying this so that no one may deceive... Oh, okay, nope, we're going from verse 6. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have come to fullness in him, who is the head of every ruler and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the spiritual circumcision by putting off the body of putting off the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ. When you were buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him. When he forgave us all our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands, he set this aside, nailing it to the cross, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in it. Therefore, do not let anyone condemn you in matters of food and drink or or of observing festivals, new moons or Sabbaths. These are only a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Do not let anyone disqualify you, insisting on self-abasement and worship of angels, dwelling on visions puffed up without cause by a human way of thinking, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the universe, why do you live as if you belonged to the world? Why do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. All these regulations refer to things that perish with use. They are simply human commands and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-imposed piety, humility, and severe treatment of the body, 
but they are of no value in checking self-indulgence. This is the word of the Lord. You know how Jesus says a bunch of things that sound really, really great, but then as you kind of dig into them a little bit more, you're kind of like, ooh, I'm not so sure about that. One of those things that Jesus says is, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. Sounds great. Let's check in a little and see how that's working out for you. Uh, How full does your life feel right now? Uh, Maybe, I think I'm in this category at the moment, maybe your life feels a little too full. Maybe there's a little too much going on in your life. Maybe. But you know what Jesus is getting at, right? He's saying that in him you can find life that really satisfies, life that works the way that it's supposed to, life that has substance and meaning. Is your life full like that? For many of us, when we think about our lives, it's not actually what fills our lives that we notice so much as what we lack. There are things missing from our lives, things that we want for our lives that we just don't have. Uh, have any of you watched, are you 30 Rock fans? Anyone? You're all too young probably to watch 30 Rock. There's some fans. Excellent. That's great. You know Liz Lemon in 30 Rock? She says, I can have it all. She says she wants to have it all all the time. And she realizes, ah, oh, no, nah, I can't. It never works. We'd love to believe that we can have it all. But we can't, or at least we just haven't figured out how to yet. Sometimes we even have a sense of uh, just what it is that has prevented us from getting the full life that we seek. Uh, There are big things out there in the world, and there are small things in our own lives, but whether it's big or small, sometimes there are things that, that actually just mean that we can't have the life that we want. Fluctuating housing markets, wars on the other side of the world, these kinds of things somehow manage to get in the way of our own financial plans for our lives. On the smaller end of things, the quirks of your personality might mean that you keep getting passed over for career opportunities, or you just can't get your relationships to work and to stick no matter how hard you try. And if we keep failing to get the kind of life that we want, it just becomes easier and easier actually to blame those kinds of things for the kind of life that we have for not being able to get the kind of life that we want. There are these forces, both external and internal, powers and fates even, that are beyond our control and seem to dictate and define the shapes of our lives. Jesus says that he can give us life to the full. Uh, is his promise empty? If it's not, and you know we know what Jesus is like, we trust that he's true to his word, if it's not an empty promise, then how do we get it? How do we get that fullness in our lives? Our section of Colossians for today uh, that Olivia's just read for us is uh, all about that question. And Paul, in his own particular way, confirms what it is that Jesus promises, that there is life to the full in him. Have a look at me with verses 9 and 10. For in Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have come to fullness in him. It's in Jesus that we find fullness, a fullness that flows out of his own overflowing fullness, a fullness that comes from God himself. Uh, In our section last week, we saw that we don't need Jesus plus in order to live well. We don't need to add anything to what we already have in Jesus because all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him. Uh, In this section, the same point really is made again, and it turns out this is pretty much what Colossians is about. Paul's going to say this again and again and again in a bunch of different ways. The same points made again in our passage tonight from a different angle. You don't need Jesus plus in order to have a full life. Because if you have Jesus, then you've already been filled with a fullness that comes from God. 
So to ask the question again, how do we get that fullness? How do we get that in our lives? We're going to uh, walk through this passage uh, under three headings to answer that question. You'll see them up on the screen. Uh, firstly, we're going to talk about being captive to the world. Secondly, about enjoying the world. And thirdly, about a transfer to another world. Uh, point one, being captive to the world. The main section of this passage begins with a warning. It's right there in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. Uh, The key phrase here is that final one there, not according to Christ. Uh, Paul here is unpacking part of what he said in that beautiful poem that we read last week in chapter 1. In verse 17, he says, In him, in Jesus, all things hold together. All things find their deep meaning, their coherence, their place in the world in relation to him. In him, all things hold together. The point isn't that anything that's not Jesus is automatically bad. Rather, the danger that we're being warned against here is seeing things not according to Christ. That is, failing to see everything in relation to Jesus, how they fit into the world that was made through him and for him, how they find their deep meaning ultimately in him. We're being warned not to fall for things that seem to make sense of the world, but really don't at all. Uh, That phrase in the translation uh, that we use here, philosophy and empty deceit, uh, it'd be better to translate it actually as empty and deceitful philosophy. The point isn't philosophy's bad, Don't worry, those art students in the room who are studying philosophy. The point isn't philosophy is bad. The point is that even the greatest philosophical mind, even the greatest philosophical insight, can't ultimately make any sense of the world unless it's viewed in relation to Jesus. Uh, Paul uses another really interesting phrase uh, here in verse 8, the elemental spirits of the universe. Uh, The Greek word that uh, we translate here as elemental spirits uh, can mean a few different things. It can mean the physical elements that make up the universe. Uh, In the ancient world, they thought there were the four of them, earth, water, air, and fire. Those things were the four things that made up everything else in the physical universe. But that same word, elemental spirits, that same Greek word, can be used metaphorically to refer to the spiritual forces represented in ancient cosmology by the, the moon and the planets and the stars which are all believed to have a significant influence in human life, kind of like modern-day astrology, you know, Venus conjunct Ashfield. I don't know know how astrology works. That kind of thing. The planets have some kind of influence in our lives. Uh, It's that final sense there, I think, that Paul is trying to use here. The elemental spirits are the unseen power structures in the cosmos that shape and even determine the fates of human lives. And therefore, if they're the things that shape and give fates to different people, if they're the things that shape human life like that, then they must be the things that hold the key to fullness. But the warning here that Paul gives to the Colossian church and to us is that these things can take you captive. They can become the way that you make sense of the world. They can become your lens for understanding reality. They can become the stories that we tell to make meaning. And when they do, and this is really the point that Paul wants to make, when they do, when they become the basis of the stories that we tell to make meaningful sense of the world, they begin to determine how we live. The elemental spirits can't fulfil you, but they can have power over you. They can take you captive. They can determine how you live your life. Now, obviously, we understand the world very differently to the ancients. We know that there's lots more elements than four. How many elements are there? Does anyone know? 
No, no, there's lots. I've seen a periodic table. It's got lots of, lots of squares, lots of squares. We know heaps more than the ancients did, right, about how the world works. So we wouldn't fall in for this kind of thing, would we? Except when you start to look around, it's very easy to spot some of the empty and deceitful philosophies of our world, even to identify what the elemental spirits of our age might be, those things that actually frame up how we believe the world works and the stories we tell to make sense of it. And those things, almost always for us, are what we think are the key to being full. Uh, here are three of them. You can tell me whether you think um, there are others this evening. I'm just going to highlight three that I think. I think these are three things uh, that uh, might function as elemental spirits in our particular age uh, and some of the ways in which they can take us captive. Uh, number one, elemental spirit number one, scientific rationalism. Uh, the kind of idea, you know, that sound logic and scientific method are the primary way to understand the world and if something can be explained logically and scientifically, therefore it can be controlled. How might the spirit of scientific rationalism take you captive? Uh, one way, I think, might be uh, an obsession with your health. Uh, the science of medicine is the way that you'll find fullness uh, and you do everything in your power to avoid illness and death, whatever the cost. Uh, another way that we might fall um, for this kind of uh, spirit uh, of scientific rationalism uh, is to fall for a kind of um, psychological determinism. I am my diagnosis. That's what actually makes sense of my life. Everything is seen through that lens. You can do it with um, various brands of pop psychology too. Um, what Myers-Briggs type are you? Anyone? Some of you in the room know what you are. Or what Enneagram thingy are you? I don't know how Enneagram works. It's astrology, right? Something like that. Uh, look, Myers-Briggs land, you know, uh, you might say, I'm an extrovert with high J. And that explains why I don't have any friends. And that's what makes it okay that I'm rude to people all the time and tell them how to live their lives. Extrovert with high J, that's just who I am. That's how it goes. That makes sense of me and of my experience of the world. Modern medicine and the science of psychology are gifts from the Lord. But they can't guarantee perfect health. They can't defeat death. They can't define your reality. Physical training is of some value, the Bible says, but godliness is valuable in every way. Scientific rationalism can't lead you into fullness. That's elemental spirit of our age, number one, scientific rationalism. Here's number two, uh, expressive individualism. Uh, this is the idea which um, you know, all of you have grown up with and see on the socials every day and hear in the media. All of you know what this is, expressive individualism. It means that meaning comes from within you, that you should just do whatever makes you happy because what you feel inside defines your reality and you get to choose who to be. As the great Taylor Swift once said, uh, she actually, did you know this? I'm going to quote from, um, from a speech that she made when she accepted an honorary doctorate. So from now on, I expect you all to refer to her as Dr. Swift at all times. As Dr. Swift once said, it can be overwhelming figuring out who to be. But I have some good news. It's totally up to you. This is what she said next. Same speech, Dr. Swift again. I also have some terrifying news. It's totally up to you. Uh, really pretty insightful, actually. You can see why they gave her the doctorate. Good news, you get to choose who to be. Terrifying news, you get to choose who to be. And that's how it works for us in our world a lot of the time. The story our culture tells us is that you have the freedom to be whatever you want to be, to be whoever you want to be. 
But actually, that, that just shows, and you know, there's all kinds of research backing this up, that actually just leads to deep anxiety, to declining mental well-being. Because it turns out that you actually can't be whatever you want to be. I had a friend who at age 13 decided, I'm going to be an astronaut. He's a real smart dude. He certainly could be an astronaut if intelligence was all that mattered. By the time he was 17, he was already two inches taller than the maximum height allowable for an astronaut. Can't be an astronaut, sorry. Can't be whatever you want to be. In fact, a great deal of who we are has been shaped by forces outside of our control in good ways and in bad. You can't be whoever you want to be, and yet that's what our culture tells us. A key symptom of the spirit of expressive individualism, a sign that it's taken you captive, uh, is, I think, seen in comparing yourself with others. I want to be what they are. I want their talents. I want their looks. I want their relationships. And the more I see what they have, the more dissatisfied I am, not just with what I have, but with who I am in myself. Uh, can I just say uh, that, you know, Instagram, the social media thing, like it's a critique that everyone's heard before, but like it's really true in this area that actually it makes this really hard to avoid. And to be honest, I've, I follow and I'm friends with a bunch of you guys on the socials. And it's interesting, sometimes we use different language in social media land than what we do interpersonally, actually. I've seen lots of you guys, um, you know, affirm one another, um, particularly for, for your looks, for your bodies. And you go, I don't know, actually, if that's really helpful, actually particularly because it's always positive and it just reinforces this narrative that you've got to look the, the right kind of way. Elemental spirits of the universe. That's not true. That's not how the world works. When the story that you tell to make sense of the world is defined by what you lack and defined by the fullness not that you have but that others have, you will never find fullness for yourself. All you'll find out is how much you lack. But as the Apostle John writes, see what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Whatever else you are and want to be, you are first and foremost a loved child of God. We've heard James testify on this this evening, haven't we? And as his children, you are also his heirs. All that belongs to Jesus, he shares with you. He's where you'll find fullness. Scientific rationalism, expressive individualism, number three, third elemental spirit of our age, the market. Uh, in our world, we've just kind of taken it for granted that we're constantly under the influence of these kind of mysterious forces called market forces out there somewhere, invisibly in the world. We have graphs on the news mapping the rise and fall of global financial markets, kind of like an EKG, right, for whether or not the earth is healthy, the world is going the way it's supposed to. Sometimes we even attribute personal agency to market forces. We say things like, the market has not been kind to us this year. As though markets can be kind or unkind, as though they have agency in that way. Problematically, if markets do have any kind of agency, their personality isn't always what you'd like. Markets often get described as volatile. And if you have volatile people in your life, apparently that's what the market's often like as well. Kind of like one of those ancient gods throwing a temper tantrum and you know, shooting down lightning bolts on people to take out his anger. What might it look like for the spirit of the market to have taken you captive? Uh, primarily, it's this. It's that you're going to see financial security as your ultimate security. Your major worries will be financial and your hopes will depend on your finances turning out the way that you plan and hope that they will. Perhaps especially in our age, the spirit of the market might be expressed in our anxiety about owning a home. Now, all the caveats, etc. blah, 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 owning a home is a good thing, it's not evil in and of itself, etc., etc. But if your whole life is organised around buying, 
paying off or improving your home to increase its value, then you may well have been taken captive. If you're trying to get as much as you can instead of simply getting what you need, then you may well have been taken captive. But Jesus says, don't worry, saying what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear. Your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Fullness from God in Jesus. He's your father. He knows what you need. There's three things that you might call elemental spirits of our own age. Scientific rationalism, expressive individualism, the market. They all seem to have a kind of explanatory power. They can make sense of our experience of the world. And they promise to actually fulfill us as well. They give us tools, they give us methods, they give us ways to actually go about getting the fullness that we want. But they're empty and deceitful. And they can take you captive. Really what Paul wants you to see here, what God's trying to teach us through this passage, through this whole book really, is that there couldn't possibly be anything else actually in the world other than Jesus that would give you fullness. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the firstborn from the dead. Why would you go anywhere else? Fullness can only be found in him. And that means that it's only when his story becomes the way that we make meaningful sense of the world when he displaces the elemental spirits as the powers, the structures that determine and shape our lives, it's only then that we can relate to the world in a new way. What's that way going to be? Not as captives to the world, but instead in enjoying the world. That's where we're going in point two. To belong to Jesus changes our relationship to all of those forces, those structures, those powers in the world that threaten to take us captive. Uh, Jesus, we find out in this passage, has broken their power. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in the cross. Uh, Paul uses a different phrase here, rulers and authorities, but he's talking about the same thing, actually, the kinds of forces, powers in our lives, so often beyond our control, which force to overwhelm us, to threaten us, uh, to take control of our lives. But through Jesus' death and resurrection, he has disarmed them. He has shamed them. He has won victory over them. And because we belong to him, we share in that victory as well. It means something for us and for our lives. And Paul goes there in verse 20. He writes, With Christ, you died to the elemental spirits of the universe. If you belong to Jesus, you share in his victory. Uh, What happened to the cross is that Jesus allowed the powers of uh, his day, the powers at work in the world, to do their very worst to him. They killed him. And once he was dead, they couldn't do anything else to him. They couldn't kill him anymore. They had no more power over him. But, of course, he didn't remain dead. The Father, in his power by the Spirit, raised him to new life. And that means that if you have died with Jesus, if you belong to him, then those forces no longer have any power over you either. You have died to them. They're dead to you. They can't determine the shape of your life anymore. They can't take you captive. And that fundamental gospel truth that those things can no longer have any power over you, can no longer take you captive, that fundamental gospel truth leads Paul to issue another warning. Let me read the whole of verse 22. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the universe, why do you live as though you still belong to the world? In other words, he says, don't let yourself be taken captive by the very things that have no power to take you captive. 
Uh, in verse 16 to uh, 18, he uh, gives some examples of particular ideas and teachings and uh, ways of living that might uh, threaten to take you captive. Uh, I'm going to skip over those this evening. You can ask me about them later if you want. I want to drill down on the example that he gives in the second half of verse 20 and in verse 21. Let me read to you from the middle of verse 20. He says, why do you submit to regulations? And then he tells us what regulations he has in mind. Verse 21, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Uh, what I think it's worth noticing here isn't first and foremost that Paul encourages the Christians in the city of Colossae to exercise their gospel freedom from regulations, from the kind of legalism that's so easy to fall into. That's important, but it's not the main thing to notice here. What I want us to notice is the kind of regulations that he mentions. Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. What those regulations are encouraging someone to do, you see, is to say no to the world, to cut yourself off from, it, uh, from the world, to avoid it, to keep it at arm's length. The reason that that's worth noticing is that what Paul says here, in effect, is no to saying no. It's important because the picture that lots of people in our world have of Christianity is that it's all about saying no to stuff, right? Do you have friends and family who think that being a Christian just means, ah, oh, there's just things you're not allowed to do. That's really what it's about. And they're the funnest things for the most part. Saying no to stuff, that's what being a Christian is all about. It might even be that that's how Christianity feels to you a lot of the time as well. Don't enjoy yourself, don't have fun, the world's big and evil, and so it's best to keep away from it as much as possible. You could summarise that idea, that picture of Christianity in three rules. Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Those are precisely the things that Paul says Jesus' followers should not submit to. He puts the same point positively in his first letter to Timothy. There he writes, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected, provided it's received with thanksgiving. Uh, or, if I can paraphrase, he says, handle, taste, touch, enjoy it, enjoy the world that God's made, it's good. Uh, the gospel is, of course, on one level, a no. It's God's great no to sin, to evil, and to death. But on an even more fundamental level, the gospel is God's great yes. His yes to humanity, his yes to creation, his yes to life itself. The gospel means good news, right? There's going to be something good about it. The gospel is God's declaration that he will not let sin and evil and death have the last word on the world that he has made and that he loves. As Jesus himself said, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Or in the words of the great poem from Colossians chapter 1 again, through Jesus God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, pleased to do it. It brings him pleasure, this world that he's made. And he wants it back for himself, one away from the power of sin and evil and death. What's the point? The point here is that the gospel is fundamentally positive about our world. Submitting yourself to the empty and deceitful philosophies and elemental spirits of our age is, in the end, you see, going to make you less full. You'll have less life. By contrast, if you live your lives in Christ, you'll be able to enjoy the world even more deeply and fully. Uh, now, of course, if you follow Jesus, there are things you will have to say no to. That's certainly true. There are things that you'll lack even because you've come to fullness in him. In next week's passage, we're going to hear Paul say uh, that we must put to death whatever in you is earthly. 
That's because, of course, there is proper enjoyment of God's good creation and there's improper enjoyment of God's good creation. But whatever you might lack as a follower of Jesus by earthly standards will be more than, uh, than compensated for by the fullness that you come to in Jesus. Those things that you worry about not having now, the more and more you see that Jesus has the fullness of God in him and shares it with you, the less those things will matter because you have him. And when you start more and more to see things according to him, the stories the world tells to make meaningful sense of things, scientific rationalism, expressive individualism, market forces, whatever else it might be, you'll see that the best that they can offer is to paper over the cracks of the things that you lack. But when the story of Jesus, his life and death and resurrection and the promise that he'll come again to usher in the new creation, when that story becomes the way that we make meaningful sense of the world, you'll be free to enjoy the world more than ever before because you'll have the double enjoyment of knowing that even though this thing is good in and of itself, it's good because it's been made through him and for him and that it finds its deep meaning in him. Every good thing that you have will draw you closer to God in Jesus Christ. There's a secret to that, Paul tells us. The secret is thanksgiving. But you're going to have to come back next week for the sermon on chapter 3 to hear some more about that. If you want to be full, you need to leave the captivity of the world and instead start enjoying the world. How do you do that? How do you leave the captivity of the world and so start enjoying the world instead? That's where we're going, point three. Transfer to another world. Uh, way back in chapter 1, uh, in the first uh, week of this series, uh, Paul describes what God has done for us and to us through Jesus uh, in these words. Chapter 1, verse 13. God has rescued us from the power of darkness and has transferred us into the kingdom of the beloved Son. He's rescued us from the power of darkness and has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. It's kind of as though uh, what God has done in uh, Jesus' death and resurrection is, is kind of broken into an enemy prison camp that was holding us hostage and has stolen us away from there and moved us back to territory that, that he commands, territory that he's in control of, where we're safe. He's transferred us from one world into another world. Not out of this world, of course. This is the world that he calls us to enjoy, to serve and to love. It's this world that he's determined to rescue not being saved out of this world, but being transferred from life under the power of the elemental spirits of the universe into life under the power of Christ. How does that transfer take place? Uh, that's what Paul unpacks for us in the middle section of our passage today in chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. Uh, and what he does is just give a bunch of metaphors, one after the other, to describe what God has done, what has happened to us in the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's classic Paul, really. Why would he use one metaphor when half a dozen or so would do? We're not going to look at all of them. We're just going to look at two uh, really briefly, circumcision and baptism. Well, the key to all of them, these two and the rest, is that it's all about being in him. It's all about being in Jesus. Verse 11, we read, In him also you were circumcised with a spiritual circumcision by putting off the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ. Circumcision for Israelites, for God's Old Testament people, was a physical sign of belonging to God of being cut off from any other allegiance. Uh, even in the Old Testament, though, true circumcision was always a matter of the heart. It was about a whole life devoted to God from the inside out. Uh, but notice this. We have now been spiritually circumcised, Paul tells us, in the circumcision of Christ. Uh, it's a reference uh, here to his death. 
to when Jesus was not only cut off, not only part of his flesh, but he himself was cut off from life, cut off from the land of the living. Here's the point that this is making about us. Jesus lived the wholehearted devotion to God that every one of us has failed to live. And because he's done that, he provides true circumcision of the heart. Through him, we can be brought into God's family and find true belonging with him. You're transferred from one world to another, from the powers of the universe to the powers of Christ, as he circumcises your heart, living your life for you so that you might become part of God's family. That's circumcision. Uh, Baptism, verse 12. Uh, You are buried with him in baptism, and you are also raised with him through faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. Uh, Baptism is fundamentally about identifying yourself with Jesus. It's a symbol of sharing in his death and resurrection. You go down into the water like drowning to die, leaving behind the old life that you've lived, the body of your flesh, your allegiance and devotion to everything that's not according to Christ, buried with him. And then you burst up from the water again into new life, into resurrection life, life made whole and good and pure in the Lord Jesus, spiritually alive by his power raised with him in his resurrection, transferred from death to life. Another way of putting what baptism is all about is to say it's a way of of enacting for yourself that Jesus' story has become your story, that his death and resurrection now defines your life and gives meaning to your life and to how you see the world. What's true of him is true of me. This is the story that makes sense of everything. Side note for you, if you're a Christian believer, someone who loves and trusts Jesus, and you haven't been baptised yet, you should really do that. Uh, On the one hand, you should do it because Jesus tells you to do it. It's always a good reason to do anything. On the other hand, you should do it because it's good for you. And not only good for you, actually, it's good for us too. Uh, The act of baptism, of course, doesn't save you. It's a sign of God's saving work in your life. Uh, But it's a sign given to us by Jesus as a gift to us, to grow us, to encourage us, to ground us in him. As the Anglican Church's statement of faith puts it, it's an effectual sign written in the 16th century, so the language is a bit old school, right? But effectual is just an old school way of saying effective. It's an effective sign. It's a sign that by God's grace actually does something spiritually both to the person who is baptised and to the church as we witness and are encouraged by their profession of faith. It's good for you. And what Paul's doing with it here in this passage is to say, remember back to when you were baptised? You died with Christ. You were buried with him in his death. You were raised to new life. And for you to be baptised is to have a moment where you can look back and say the same thing. Whether you were baptised as a kid, whether you were baptised as an adult, did I die with Christ? Was I raised with him? Am I in him? Yes. I can point back to my baptism. That's when God declared his word of grace over me. Do it. If you haven't been baptized, do it. It's so good. You need it. You want it in your life. And we want to be with you as you do it as well. Come and talk to me. Come and talk to Louisa. Come and talk to anyone on the staff. We'll get you sorted out. There's some, a muddy puddle down the back of the... No, don't worry. We'll do it, we'll do it properly. Back to regularly scheduled programming. Um, uh, how do you leave the captivity of the world... And so come to enjoy the world, to find fullness. You do it by sharing in Christ's circumcision, by sharing in his death and his life through baptism, by living your life in him. In him, in him, in him. That's what it's all about. And the point of that language is to say this, that he has done it for you. 
And it's as you see what he's done for you that you'll more and more know his power at work in your heart and in your life. In love for the world, for you and for me, Jesus tasted death. He touched it. He gave himself over into the hands of the grave. And there on the cross, he broke the power of sin and death. He broke the power of everything that might stand against us so that you and I can taste new life in him. As Paul puts it in this passage, so that we can be nourished by him to grow in his image and likeness with a growth that comes from God himself. Because Jesus died and now lives, your life is no longer under the power of empty and deceitful philosophies, no longer subject to the power structures and invisible forces of the world, and they have nothing to offer you. You have been transferred into the kingdom of God's Son, and he will fill you. Let's pray that in God's grace, we'll continue, therefore, to live our lives in him. Our Heavenly Father, God of grace and love, you are so wonderful to us. Uh, Your grace um, has layers, to use that analogy again. Uh, Your grace rescues us out of darkness into new life and then continues to work itself out in our lives, in our hearts, that we might be more and more like the Lord Jesus. Grow us, Father. Help us to see with clarity those things in the world that uh, seek to take us captive, those uh, wrong ways of seeing the world around us, uh, all of those deceitful ways that we try to find fullness, all of those elemental spirits of our age that seek to control us. Father, we know that the Lord Jesus is the only power that matters, that he rules over all of those things, that they serve him, they belong to him. And so, Father, free us from fear of those things, free us from the kinds of lives that are organised around anything that isn't Jesus. Father, help us to live our lives in him, to know the fullness that you give to us in him. And so in all that we do, to please you more and more, In Jesus' name, amen.